welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Jasmine and I'm recording with my co-host Reese. Uh, we are recording this on uh, November the 11th, 2023. You're listening for the first time on Sunday, November the 12th, and it will be rebroadcast on Monday, November the 13th at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. How's it going, Reese? It is going pretty good. I can't complain. You know, and if I did, who would care? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, sometimes we just have to face the facts. How you doing? I'm hanging in there like I always say, you know, I, I woke up today and for that I'm grateful. A lot of, of, as we know, if you listen to our program, you know, so much darkness and stuff going on in the world. So, you know, compared to what many people are going through, like my problems really don't seem like much. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is our last time recording on this particular platform. Like we normally use Zencaster, but like many uh, great techno things that are free for a while, they've decided to make it where everyone has to pay for it, basically. And we will not be doing that. <laughs> um, but we would like to thank uh, the free version of Zencaster for its years of faithful service. It's been a really good platform uh, to use to record the show remotely. But, you know, we'll have to, we'll see you at the crossroads. We, we're not going to be using <laughs> <laughs> We won't be paying. So exactly. <laughs> that's it. Um but for this week on our last Zencaster produced uh, episode uh, for local news, we'll be talking about uh, a disturbing rise in syphilis cases among U.S. babies and more specifically in New York and New Jersey. Uh, for national news, we'll be talking about a, uh, a fake treatment program uh, for those struggling with substance abuse that was um, targeting uh, Native American people in Arizona. And for world news, uh, I'll be discussing uh, just general information about what constitutes ethnic cleansing uh, with some historical examples, as well as um, contemporary examples that we see unfolding in today's world. And for good news, we'll be discussing a a free two-year college degree program in, um, what did you say, Arkansas? Indiana. In Indiana. All right, so to get started, um, I will start out with the local news story, and this is from Gothamist, uh, written by Caroline Lewis. Syphilis is rising among U.S. babies. Here's where New York and New Jersey rank. Syphilis has been making a comeback across the U.S. in recent years after it was nearly eliminated in the early 2000s. Federal officials say the trend is having a troubling side effect, A growing number of babies are born with the infectious disease, which can be fatal or lead to serious complications for infants. In 2022, 3,761 cases of congenital syphilis were reported across the country, more than 10 times as many as a decade prior, according to a report the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released on Tuesday. While the CDC has not yet released state-level data from 2022, figures from the previous year show that New York and New Jersey are not immune to this trend, despite having lower rates of infant syphilis than the U.S. average. 
Both states experienced significant rate increases in recent years, particularly between 2020 and 2021. The CDC is urging public health professionals and doctors to take proactive steps to identify and treat syphilis in pregnant people before it's passed on to their babies. Untreated syphilis during pregnancy can cause devastating outcomes, including miscarriage, stillbirth, infant death, and lifelong medical issues, Dr. Deborah Hori, the CDC's chief medical officer, said during a press call on Tuesday. Importantly, congenital or newborn syphilis is extremely preventable if we reach people with timely testing and treatment during pregnancy. Nationwide, about 78 babies out of every 100,000 live births had congenital syphilis in 2021, according to CDC data. New Jersey's rate that year was about 47 cases for every 100,000 live births, with 48 cases in all. New York had 41 cases statewide in 2021 for a rate of about 20 per 100,000 live births. Recent spikes in congenital syphilis mirror a national escalation of transmission in sexually transmitted infections among adults during the COVID-19 pandemic, said Hori. In New York City, rates of STIs increased overall during the pandemic at a time when many of the city's sexual health clinics were closed. Syphilis rates rose significantly among women between 2020 and 2021. The pace decreased slightly among men, although overall rates were still much higher, according to city data. Meanwhile, the city health department reported that the number of babies with congenital syphilis increased with 24 cases tallied in 2021. Syphilis is caused by a bacteria known as Treponema pellitum and most infected adults are treated with three long-acting doses of antibiotic bicillin, also known as benzathine penicillin G, which can cure the disease in its early stages, according to the CDC. This past summer, the agency acknowledged that there were shortages of the drug in some parts of the country, and the New York State Health Department issued a notice saying the shortages were affecting some regions of the state. CDC representatives confirmed on Tuesday that shortages were still an issue in some areas. The CDC and the New York State Health Department both made it clear that pregnant people and infants with syphilis would be prioritized in areas affected by shortages of bicillin. Alternative options are available for people who are not pregnant. Um, so yeah, I had been aware of the overall trend of STIs really jumping off like in the u.s um but i was interested that you know this is also an issue in a quote-unquote blue state you know a lot of the worst um cases are in places where there's very little in as far as sexual education and sex clinics and things like that but it's also obviously a problem here locally yeah see people don't like to hear the truth and they don't like to hear about things that you know provide shame and things of that nature. And I feel like I, I feel like all conversation around sexually transmitted diseases has been silenced, if you will. Like you don't even see, you know, ads for safe sex. You don't see, you know, it's like so 
rare that these conversations are happening in popular culture about anything that's health related. So I'm not surprised. It is kind of sad with the information about the infants and the babies being um, on the rise as well. But I feel like there is a need for more conversations about sexual safety Um, because I think not too long ago, I remember reading a story about how there's a rising rate of STDs of young older people within nursing homes. Uh huh. And uh-huh. and people weren't talking about that either. And it's just like you know, life ain't over just because you live in these type of facilities. But these conversations need to be more out in the open because people is just shady, man. <laughs> you can't trust nobody no more. And when your health is involved like this, you know, some people reaction to it. Yeah, you may be able to get some a, a dosage for the drug, but when you I think I've met someone who's had multiple cases of syphilis and it takes a serious toll on somebody's body if it happens more than once. Right. It's like, these are serious issues. And uh, I do remember there was a campaign. It was years ago at this point, but you would see in the bus stations, like age is not a condom was the slogan, like specifically referring to the issue you're talking about. Like uh, sometimes people can have tunnel vision because they might be you know, depending on who you are and who you're sleeping with, they might just be thinking about like pregnancy. But if pregnancy isn't something that could happen, or it's something that, you know, you're like, I'm on the pill or whatever, these other issues can fall by the wayside. And, you know, there's also a problem with, you know, a lot of these STIs that are treated with antibiotics, like, they can become resistant to the treatments that we have. And then you have like strains of the illness that are difficult to treat or like the treatments we have no longer work or they're a lot less effective. So just if it's COVID or an STI or whatever, like keeping the amount of infections low serves a purpose because that helps to stop it from mutating into something different that's harder for you to control. So, um, like you mentioned, safe sex, like syphilis is something that can be prevented if you use condoms appropriately, like you are using them properly. And it's also important whether whatever type of relationship you're in, committed or not, married or whatever, like get tested, know your status, because syphilis in particular is something that you can have and you have it for years and you might not necessarily know or it can take a while before you realize it and you can be infecting other people so you know know what your status is protect yourself and if you do find out you have an STI get treated ASAP and be honest with the people that you're laying with yeah because it you know at this rate I think people's um, defenses are so down for all the distractions that's happening in the world, you know, there's no real messaging about stuff like this anymore. And, you know, it's almost like a joke when you talk about condoms, it's almost like a joke that people don't even care enough to put it out there. So I remember when we was growing up, that was the messaging that we got everywhere um, about safe sex and protecting yourself and thinking about the youth today are exposed to so much more sexually explicit stuff where is the messaging for them? Yeah, that's that's true. Because I, I do remember like on BET and so like channels I used to watch, you would see commercials about wearing condoms and it was funny. Billboards. On, yeah, you know. Yeah. And it's like, I know a lot of times people think of it and, and it would 
often be tied to um, HIV, for example, but there's many different sexually transmitted infections besides just HIV. But also having one can make you more at risk for the other. So syphilis is something that increases, like this is according to the World Health Organization, syphilis increases the risk of acquiring HIV infection by approximately twofold so if you have syphilis, you're more than you're like twice as likely to acquire HIV. And then there's other things like gonorrhea, chlamydia, herpes, and others. If you have one, you're more susceptible to the other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's worth it to be careful. And, you know, we're talking about babies in the case of this story. Like if you're pregnant, might become pregnant you know, you are, it's, your health is important, but also there's things you can do to protect your future child. Because once they're here and they have the the condition, that's much more difficult than if you're pregnant, you know your status, you're getting treated, like there's something you can do like proactively. Because some of these things like um, stillbirths and like other really serious complications that babies can have, like adverse pregnancy outcomes because the mom has syphilis is really scary, you know, and traumatic and hard. So don't let the stigma keep you from going down to the clinic or, you know, getting tested, getting whatever um, care you can get. Like it's, it's vital. And have these conversations with younger people. You know, if you have younger people in your life, it, it don't take but a second to, bring it up and just be a reminder, be a voice of reason for them because they feel pressure to be more sexual, I, I believe, today than we might have just because of what is so widely available to them and nobody's really given the counter argument about this. So take it upon yourself to maybe have that conversation or at least bring it up if you are in the presence of younger people so that they can feel supported and also like have something else to think about. Right. Absolutely. And uh, for, if you're in New York city, there are um, sexual health clinics and there's also a sexual health clinic hotline. Uh, The NYC sexual health clinic hotline, the number is three, four, seven, three, nine, six, seven, nine, five, nine. Again, that's three, four, seven, three, nine, six, seven, nine, five, nine. Uh, the website, the city government website about sexual health clinics is nyc.gov forward slash site forward slash doh forward slash services forward slash sexual dash health dash clinics dot p-a-g-e, um, which should come up if you Google it, but I read it all out just for you. So, yeah, like we all have a responsibility to, you know, know what our status is, you know, take these things in your own hands as much as you can. And there are free resources available. Sadly, they're not as many as there should be because there are real barriers to getting help. Um, But there is help available, at least in um, like on the local level. So please avail yourself of that for yourself, your future children, your wider community because these um, threats to our health have not gone away and it's a group effort to keep them down. All right, so you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. 
for our first musical break. This is Henny, Honey, I don't know how you pronounce it. It's H-N-N-Y, all capital letters, with Cheer Up My Brother. We'll be right back. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we have Reese with our national news story. All right. One of the reasons that um, I chose this story because it is Native American Heritage Month. And I do feel like, you know, there's just not enough news uh, or protections in our society around this community. So this is a very jarring story but an important one. Um, It's from the New York Times. The title is, They Wanted to Get Sober. They Got a Nightmare Instead. The subtitle, Arizona Spent $1 Billion on an Addiction Treatment. Much of it fraudulent, officials said. Scores of Native Americans who sought help are still struggling with untreated addiction and some died in rehab. And um, the author of this is Jack Healy. The white vans were the first things people noticed. They began popping up around tribal reservations in the Southwest a few years ago, trolling through alleys and parking lots on a hunt for new business. They approached anyone who looked homeless or intoxicated with an alluring pitch. Get in, we'll give you shelter, sobriety, and a better life. Monica Antonio, who's 21, was one of the thousands of people who leaped at the chance. She had been desperate to stop drinking for her three young children, her family said. But the San Carlos Apache Reservation in rural eastern Arizona, where she lived, had limited resources for drug or alcohol treatment. So last January, a van whisked her 130 miles to one of the hundreds of sober living houses that have proliferated around Phoenix in recent years with little oversight or control. 
She did well at first, earning a 30-day sobriety certificate, but friends and family said they started to worry when Ms. Antonio posted online photos showing drinking and drug use inside her sober living home. They said she started to slip. I told her, Monica, you're supposed to be sobering up. Don't you have rules? Said her grandmother, Vernadelle Johnson. She said no. She had tumbled into what prosecutors and tribal leaders call one of the largest, most exploitive frauds in Arizona's history, a scheme in which hundreds of rehab centers provided shoddy or non-existent addiction treatment to thousands of vulnerable Native Americans that cost the state as much as $1 billion. Scores of people ended up homeless, still struggling with untreated addictions, officials said. In the grimiest cases, tribal members died of overdoses inside the sober homes where they sought help. Navajo activists in Phoenix, who first alerted authorities more than a year ago to problems inside the sober living homes, say they have tracked the deaths of at least 40 Native Americans who had been in these homes. Some died while they were still patients. Some overdosed on buses or the streets after fleeing or getting kicked out. Others end up homeless in Phoenix and died of heat exposure or were hit by cars. It's one of the greatest failures of Arizona government ever, said Attorney General Chris Mays, who, along with Governor Katie Hobbs, announced a crackdown against the treatment centers earlier this year. Ms. Mays said the treatment centers operated largely unchecked for years, taking advantage of gaps in an Arizona program that funds health care for low-income tribal members. The schemes exploited overlapping American woes, addiction, soaring homelessness, and a long history of disregard for Native American health. Operators set up companies with names like Healing Fountain, Happy Valley, or Angelic Behavioral Health, registered with the state as a counseling centers and behavioral health residential facilities and placed them in subdivisions where small-scale investors have snapped up homes as rental properties. They began running up huge bills, Arizona authorities say. One business billed the state thousands purportedly to treat a four-year-old for alcohol addiction. Another charged $1.2 million to treat a parent and two young children for a year. Similar frauds have occurred in Nevada, Georgia, and Texas, Ms. May said, though on a smaller scale. The money Arizona paid out to these programs through its Medicaid system exploited over the past four years from $53 million in 2019 to $668 million last year. Officials said they do not know how much of this was for legitimate treatment and how much was fraud. It's scary that this is happening in the middle of America, said President Boo Nigren of the Navajo Nation, which declared a public health emergency over the fraud. State officials said the Medicaid fund for Native American treatment amounted to virtually to a virtually unguarded pool of money that was poorly regulated and easily exploited. They have since tightened their rules and shut off the unlimited supply of money. Reva Stewart a Navajo activist working with families to find their relatives says some fraudulent homes are still operating and people are still being recruited. It's really frustrating, she said. State officials say they are continuing to investigate. Arizona has suspended more than 300 treatment businesses, including the company that ran the home where Miss Antonio stayed. It has charged more than 40 people with defrauding taxpayers by running up huge bills through Arizona's American India Health Program, which is part of the Medicaid system. 
the FBI and the federal prosecutors are investigating. In July, a woman from Mesa, Arizona, became one of the first people convicted after she pled guilty to federal charges of money laundering and wire fraud. Prosecutors say she was an owner of two treatment companies that received $22 million. According to court documents, she spent the money on four Mercedes-Benz cars, homes in Las Vegas and Arizona, diamond necklaces, and a showroom's worth of Gucci, Versace, and Louis Vuitton bags. Tribal leaders and more than a dozen a dozen former patients said that the human toll of the scheme was far worse and larger than any financial loss. People who traveled from as far as Montana and the Dakotas described Arizona sober living providers as slapdash operations where drugs and alcohol were plentiful, but actual help was scarce. Some homes were well kept while others were furnished only with mattresses and a few boxes of macaroni and cheese. It was so empty and depressing, says Cindy Smith, a San Carlos Apache member who lived in the residential facility last year. The door was broken, no bed. People were coming in and doing drugs. According to interviews with activists, former patients, and Arizona officials, the small staffs who ran the homes made little effort to help people stay sober and in some cases fostered their addiction. The white vans sometimes stopped at liquor stores on the way to Phoenix to ply people with alcohol. Some homes conducted regular drug tests and had zero tolerance. Others looked the other way while people smoked meth and drank in their bedrooms, former residents said. There were flights. There were fights. There were drugs. There were alcohol in these homes, says State Senator Teresa Hathali, a Navajo citizen who says she tried for years to get regulations to shut down the unlicensed sober living houses. There was no enforcement. The idea seems like let them keep, let's keep them drunk, keep them using. The longer they stay, the more money. It was a volume business, and the operators paid residents to recruit friends and families as new patients. Several tribal members said they never spoke with any counselors or addiction experts. Instead, they were shuttled to group rehab sessions where the only requirement was that they sign in and provide their tribal identification number so providers could start billing. Other patients decided to leave their homes or were evicted when the treatment centers abruptly shuttered. This left them on the street, stranded hundreds of miles away from family with no money to call home. So the story keeps going on um, for a little while longer, but <sighs> sad to say, um, this is there are still houses out there that are open and operating as we speak with this problem. Yeah, that reading through that or listening to you, I, I was able to pull it up and re read along. And it's some of these things are just so shocking and disgusting. Like it makes you wonder how people live with themselves doing this shit. You know, like you think you're going to get some kind of relief or help or whatever, and you're just totally taken advantage of and disposed of, basically. It's extremely sad. And it's, it's almost like, you know, I hate to be such a, a conspiracy theorist, right? But I I'm, always feel like when it comes to the Native American population, every out is an in and every in is an out. Like every time there is something that's supposed to be designed to help is literally just another ploy to kill, you know? And this is such an extreme situation um, that we would not know about, Um for these, you know, state representatives to say that they were trying to get regulations on these things. They were trying to alert. If you're a state representative and you're trying to get regulations, you're trying 
to make people aware of what's happening and it's not moving, then what? You know, what happens at that point? You know, America and they fake regulations um, on things. It just really kills me sometimes because it's almost like the system is literally designing itself to fail in multiple places for multiple communities. And this is going on right now as we speak. This is still happening. You would think that a story like this would would be all over the news. And, and it would be something that, you know, would be a national conversation about the treatment of Native Americans, but it's not. Yeah, and like, I'm, I'm right there with you with the conspiracy, whatever, and I don't care because it's not, it's not no tinfoil hat anything. You know, a lot of this stuff that's like, oh, the leadership is incompetent or it's a mistake. It's like, nah, this is working according to plan. Because when you have drugs and you have alcohol in abundance in certain communities, like that is done intentionally, you know, because these are powerful things that can alter someone's brain chemistry. It can, you know, limit or damage their ability to function and be present for their families. And when you make a deliberate choice to allow these things to be funneled into certain areas and heavily promoted. Like I think it's done with intent because then you can turn around and argue that these people are inferior or whatever. And then that justifies like more apathy towards those groups or that let's not invest more resources in these areas. It's really I'm just shaking my head, you know, and they have the picture of one of the young lady who was trying to get sober uh, because she had the young kids. At the end of the article, it talks about these children that are still asking for their mom. You know, they're all under 10 years old. Um, Mm -hmm. And they said they offered to pay for her funeral, $5,000. It's just, it's, it's, it's unbearable to think that this is, you know, (laughs) I mean, and I'm not even trying to foreshadow the show, genocide happening right here um, in droves and there's nothing being done about it. You know, no one, it's like no one cares. It's like no one is even checking for these communities. Um, and it's sad because like I, like I said earlier, this is not national news to anybody but us. What the fuck is that about? Like, I just don't understand how how something so big like this could be um, just flying under the radar. Like it's not important. Like these people's lives don't matter. And the biggest part of this story is not the names of these people who are being murdered. It's the amount of money that this state has spent <laughs> in this program. It's, it's mm-hmm. unbelievable. It's, it's, it's disheartening. So, you know, prayers up for native American communities all over this country. Um, you know, so much needs to be talked about, done, reconsidered. You know, this is a community that was literally killed off and is still to this day being murdered by the state. Um, and it's just it's just ridiculous. You know, I just, I feel overwhelmed just thinking about, could this could happen to any one of our family members? Um, here we are thinking that they're going to get some help and they literally walk into their demise. It's really, really sad. It really is, you know, because like you're saying, like these are people that they had the presence of mind to be like, I'm struggling, I need help. And for someone to, for these groups to betray that and deliberately put them in a situation where they're going from struggling to even worse than that, or they're 
being left to die, basically. It's reprehensible. And I think you're right to when you talk about genocide, like there is an ongoing genocide in this country and also in Canada and other parts of um, North and South America against indigenous populations. It's not something that's just in the history books. You know, and one of the things, um, one of the ways that genocide unfolds is through the forcible removal of children. And one of the big drivers of like family policing is, oh, that these parents are unfit because, oh, they're alcoholics, oh, they're on drugs and things like that. So to get back into that conspiracy bag, think about what that means for like, okay, all these people are, they're trying to get help for these addictions. They're not getting help at all. And then what happens to those people's kids? A lot of them get removed from the community. They get removed from their blood family. They get removed from their, um, whatever their tribal affiliation might be also happens. And we see people fighting in order to try to get to adopt these kids into like white evangelical families. That is a type of genocide um, to try to prevent the that group from going into future generations and passing down like their heritage. So yeah, it's all connected to who's considered disposable and you know, whose lives are valued in this country. And it's just, it's extremely sad. Like, I hope that these places get cracked down on ASAP. It's horrible. It is. And, um, you know, just don't leave, just, I don't know. I don't even know what to say to people aside from just don't leave your family members unchecked, no matter what, you know, type of treatment facility they're going to for, even in the freaking hospital. You don't know. You don't want to know what's happening behind those doors. And you sitting here thinking that things is copacetic because it's too hard to care. And the truth of the matter, your family members could be being mistreated or, you know, in this case, left to die. Um, so let's just be a little bit more mindful um, of people in this situation. Right. Okay, you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our next musical break, this is The Killers, When You Were Young. We'll be right back.
you can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our world news story, um, I will be talking about um, ethnic cleansing. Uh, So instead of just talking about one instance of a news story happening right now, I wanted to um, go through like the definition of what ethnic cleansing is uh, and then talk about a few um, different examples from the past and also the present. Uh, So this information comes from the Encyclopedia Britannica. It was written by George J. Andreopoulos, uh, and it was last edited on October 2nd of this year. Uh, I'm not going to read the full entry on ethnic cleansing, but um, just most of the beginning, just to give an overview. Um, Ethnic cleansing is the attempt to create ethnically homogenous meaning having um, the whole uh, whole area be the same ethnic group, uh, geographic areas through the deportation or forcible displacement of persons belonging to particular ethnic groups. Ethnic cleansing sometimes involves the removal of all physical vestiges of the targeted group through the destruction of monuments, cemeteries, and houses of worship. The term ethnic cleansing a literal translation of the Serbo-Croatian phrase etnikos sisenje, or C-I-S-C-E-N-J-E, uh, apologies for uh, mispronouncing, was widely employed in the 1990s, although the, ter- the, fir- the term first appeared earlier to describe the brutal treatment of various civilian groups in the conflicts that erupted upon the disintegration of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. The term also has been attached to the treatment of Indonesian militants of the people of East Timor, many of whom were killed or forced to abandon their homes after citizens there voted in favor of independence in 1999, and to the plight of Chechens who fled Grozny and other areas of Chechnya following Russian military operations against Chechen separatists during the 1990s. According to a report issued by the United Nations Secretary General, the frequent occurrence of ethnic cleansing in the 1990s was attributable to the nature of contemporary armed conflicts in which, quote, civilian casualties and the destruction of civilian infrastructure are not simply byproducts of war, but the consequences of the deliberate targeting of non-combatants. In many conflicts, belligerents target civilians in order to expel or eradicate segments of the population or for the purpose of hastening military surrender. Ethnic cleansing as a concept has generated considerable controversy. Some critics see little difference between it and genocide. Defenders, however, argue that ethnic cleansing and genocide can be distinguished by the intent of the perpetrator. Whereas the primary goal of genocide is the destruction of an ethnic, racial, or religious group, 
the main purpose of ethnic cleansing is the establishment of ethnically homogenous lands, which may be achieved by any of a number of methods, including genocide. Another major controversy concerns the question of whether or not ethnic cleansing originated in the 20th century. Some scholars have pointed to the forced resettlement of millions of people by the Assyrians in the 9th and 7th centuries BC as perhaps the first cases of ethnic cleansing. Among other examples cited are the mass execution of Danes by the English in 1002 AD, attempts by the Czechs to rid their territories of Germans in the Middle Ages, the expulsion of Jews from Spain in the 15th century, and the forced displacement of Native Americans by white settlers in North America in the 18th and 19th centuries. Others argue that ethnic cleansing, unlike earlier acts of forced resettlement, is the result of, of certain uniquely 20th century developments, such as the rise of powerful nation states fueled by nationalist and pseudoscientific racist ideologies in conjunction with the spread of advanced technology and communications. Um, so I'll start reading from the, Britan the Encyclopedia Britannica um, uh, entry there, uh, but I would encourage you to read the full thing. I thought it was very informative. Um, and I know what's dominating uh, much of the news right now is um, the current uh, genocide happening against Palestinians right now. Uh, and this is as of today, November the 11th, uh, Reuters reports Palestinian officials said on Friday, 11,078 Gaza residents had been killed in air and artillery strikes since October 7th, around 40 of them uh, children. And we've been seeing um, numerous attacks on hospitals and other like roads, other types of uh, civilian infrastructure in uh, Palestine. Uh, we also have um, the Nagorno-Karabakh region of Az Azerbaijan, uh, which is an ethnic enclave full of uh, people who are ethnically Armenian. Um, as of late September, 80% of the region's population had fled. Uh, Azerbaijan recaptured the region, and the Azerbaijani military paraded through the region's nearly empty capital city, of Kankendi or Stepanakert as it's known in Armenian on Wednesday, November the 8th. Um, and according to the Associated Press, uh, the country of Azerbaijan started blockading the road to the capital last winter, which led to severe food and medicine shortages in the Armenian held area. In September, Azerbaijan launched a blitz that forced um, separatist forces to disband. More than 100,000 ethnic Armenians have fled the, re fled the region in the following days, leaving the city nearly deserted. Um, and if you have seen images of this military parade, it marked Azerbaijan's Victory Day, a holiday, a holiday that commemorates the retaking of the territory in 2020. Uh, so again, Nagorno-Karabakh, if you're not familiar, like it's a region that's inside of the borders of Azerbaijan um, that is physically separate from Armenia, but 
almost all the people living there are Armenian and the surrounding country of Azerbaijan has retaken it. Um, and the capital, that region has almost been like emptied out uh, recently um, and taken over. Uh, and from Al Jazeera, Luis Moreno Ocampo, who was a former international criminal court chief prosecutor uh, has said that it's obvious what is happening there is ethnic cleansing uh, and that the legal description is called genocide. He goes on to say it's an excuse that the Azerbaijan government is saying, oh, leaving was voluntary after they were bombing them and were starving them to death for months. Um, and another example of an ongoing um, ethnic cleansing uh, is happening in Sudan right now. Uh, this excerpt is from an article in Al Jazeera by Matt Nashed from yesterday, November the 10th. Uh, Sudan's Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, besieged a camp for displaced people on November 2nd after attacking a nearby army base in West Darfur. Over the next three days, the paramilitary group committed what may amount to the single largest mass killing since the civil war erupted in April. Local monitors told Al Jazeera that about 1,300 people were killed, 2,000 injured, and 310 remain missing. They went house to house to search for men and killed each one they found, said Montessar Saddam, who barely escaped the killing and arrived in Chad on Sunday. There were so many corpses in the streets. The latest atrocities are part of a wider campaign by the Rapid Support Forces and its allied militias to eradicate the non-Arab Mazalit tribe from West Darfur, according to activists and survivors. Um, so I, I know that that was lengthy, but I wanted to just shine a light on, you know, some of these terms that we're seeing more and more frequently in the news. Like I, I'm not an expert and I know like most people are going about their day-to-day -day life. They might not be read up on what these terms actually mean, uh, but I wanted to give some context and some definitions for what it means when you see someone saying uh, that an ethnic cleansing is happening. Um, so you have a better understanding of the gravity of what's going on. Um, not just in one region, like whatever area might be getting the most attention right now, but we have these atrocities unfolding globally at the same time to many uh, groups of people. Wow. That's, um, thanks for breaking down that situation. I definitely have um, quite a few um, Armenian friends that I've met since I've been out here. I actually live in a very Armenian neighborhood in L.A., and I have seen a lot of like community meetings and stuff like that, talking about um, the safety back home and of their family members. But anyway, just in general, you know, genocide is a thing I think that a lot of more people are starting to wake up to, but has been going on and ethnic cleansing as well for so long. You know, arguably it's like the biggest terrorist threat ever. Um, and we should define it as so because that's what it is. And in the same context, like it's important for us to see these global struggles because it's not just what you see in the news. You know, it's that's what they want you to believe. But the reality is these atrocities happen every day and people are being, you know, killed um, for reasons for no reason whatsoever, you know, over power and, and space and 
you know, the illusion that they own something when really none of us own this space here um, or this time. So definitely we need to have more conversations about how this affects the whole just because it's happening in a place you've never been doesn't mean that you won't feel the effects of it. Because the more we uh, don't talk about it, it makes it more okay uh, for it to happen. And even though, you know, sometimes our conversations seem like they're just that conversations, the awareness and the solidarity that we we develop from understanding is powerful and impactful. Um, I'm not sure how much power we have, but that shouldn't be the reason that we don't um, highlight these atrocities and, and stand in solidarity with people who suffer in this way. Yeah, I mean, there's that expression, today for me, tomorrow for you. Many people know that MLK quote that, you know, a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And, you know, we were just talking about Native American people suffering uh, in our last segment. You know, I've also, you know, I'm the result, like when people talk about the great migration in the United States of Black people up to the North, I mean, it wasn't really just people, oh, I just feel like moving, like people were being forced out, terrorized, and under the threat of extreme violence and torture were being removed from their homes so that others could take it over. So these, and you know, we still see the results of that today and it's still happening in some ways in this country. So it is important not to tune out something that is happening in another part of the world. Like you said, that maybe you haven't been or you're not familiar. You need to get familiar because it's an old playbook. And I appreciate that that entry in the encyclopedia goes back throughout history, that this is an ongoing thing that predates all of us. It doesn't have to go on forever, but if we allow it to keep happening elsewhere, it will turn around and happen to you one day. Like one day it will be your turn. So, you know, I do hope more people, like you say, wake up to how serious of a threat this is to humanity and the fact that it's going on and on and these international bodies are not stopping it. It's really, it's, it makes you sick to your stomach just to just see the weight of the suffering happening. It's really, it's overwhelming. All the time. Oh, all right. Have we finally gotten to the good news segment? We have. Yes, we have. So take it away. <laughs> All right. This is uh, an article from the goodnewsnetwork.org. The author is Andy Corbley. The title is University Creates Two-Year Debt-Free College Degree to Help Underserved Students. Butler University of Indianapolis has created a two-year debt-free college to offer an associate's degree aimed at helping prospective first-generation laureates laureates get access to higher education. Graduates of the facility can then continue their path to a bachelor's degree for a flat rate of $10,000 a quarter or the current normal tuition of $45,000. We were founded in 1855 by an abolitionist, President James Danco told CNN. We were not living out our founder's dream. That set in motion a lot of conversation and discussion about how we would deliver a degree what would the type of student look like? Butler University is a private liberal arts college in Indiana, and the new college and programs will be funded by endowments and donations and, accept and accessible to students in low-income housing areas and those who will be the first in their family in history to go to college. It was advised 
by the Come to Believe Network, an organization that helps design affordable degree programs for four-year universities like Butler, which has helped create similar programs at Loyola in Chicago and the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis. Danko said that Butler will begin enrolling students under the Affordable Associates Program next year at the Midtown Indianapolis campus for the 2025 fall semester. The Come to Believe model is not only innovative in its approach, but it is also has proven outcomes, resonating deeply with Butler's mission, Danko said in a statement. Students will have the option of pursuing associate degrees in business or allied health. So it's short and sweet. Um, I think this is a good thing, um, just particularly with the rising cost of everything in life. If I had this opportunity, I definitely would have taken it. But also, you know, I think a lot of people today are questioning if college is the right path um, because of all of the issues that we have with student loan debt and uh, people finding other ways, alternatives to be successful. Um, maybe this will encourage uh, young students whose parents have never been to school. I'm a first gen college grad, so I understand what that pressure is like, you know, and sometimes just the applications and the FAFSA alone is enough to discourage someone who doesn't feel comfortable with the process. Um, I was lucky to be a people, a person who went through the upper bound program, but that program really did help me to have my eyes on something different. So hopefully this will actually reach the community um, that is supposed to and be effective. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, sometimes there can be an overemphasis on going straight to a four-year program or going to certain places because of the name or the prestige and that can put a lot of unnecessary pressure on young people like financially and otherwise so like I, I think it's amazing like to open people's minds up to you know there are two-year programs there's there are community colleges there's ways that you can get a quality education without spending any money or spending, you know, as little as possible, you know, like it's not, you know, the price tag on the institution doesn't equal like it's worth. Um, so I hope more places follow suit with, you know, giving people a leg up in this way. Like, I think it's great news because, you know, education is incredibly important. Yeah, absolutely. So Hopefully we'll see this model in a lot more colleges and universities across the country, uh, especially those cities that really need it. And, you know, this could be in a wave of something that, you know, the bigger conversation about, should we start small till we go big? You know, I wish somebody would tell me that. <laughs> somebody would tell me that I might've had a different trajectory. I do think that my route was still a good route, but the thought of having, you know, two years to kind of get myself you know, into it and then figuring out what I want to do. It could have been a different, it could have been a different thing, but shout out to them for giving the program a try. 18 is very young to jump into something and like perhaps go into a whole lot of debt. So it's really important for there to be like an in-between phase or give young people time to get their sea legs and figure out what right. to do next but they're also gaining knowledge and skills while they're figuring that out. So yeah, absolutely a model to emulate. So thank you for that good news story, Reese. Sure. Anytime. <laughs> yeah. And thank you all for listening. You have been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. 
Stay tuned for more community-based Brooklyn radio. Um, and, you know, thanks for your service, Zencaster. But, you know, I guess we won't be seeing you next week. <laughs> we'll be recording on a different platform. But, you know, we had a good run. We did. Um, yeah. And for our last musical um, interlude, this is Frankie Beverly and Mace with Joy and Pain. Bye. Have a good week, everybody. Bye. Yeah.